I will feast at the table of the Lord. I will feast at the table of the Lord. I won't hunger anymore. Welcome to the table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. We worship at Island Creek Elementary School, 7855 Morning View Lane, every Sunday at 10 a.m. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. 
And once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, do not sin again. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So we um, are almost to the end, one week left um, after this week, and the series that we've been calling The Handmaid's Tale, um, which it actually has nothing to do with the TV show or the, the book, The Handmaid's Tale, but it's the idea that there are tales in scripture of the silenced, and let's listen to them. That's basically the idea of, this, of the sermon series there. Let's listen to them. And so, and one of the quotes from The Handmaid's Tale um, that we kind of put on the altar and kind of framed it a little bit is that freedom, like everything else, is relative. And so the first week we dug into the story of Hagar, and if you remember, and we discovered that Hagar, um, Hagar's story tells us that freedom is um, complicated. It's, it is, it's not what you think it is. Um, and then the next week we dug into the story of Rahab, and in that story we realized that sometimes you become set free, you are set free by helping set free other people. Um, and then we, we looked at, at the story of Esther, that's a very similar thread, being set free through the setting free of other people. And then we moved to the story of, of the, um, the, the, the um, persistent widow. And then the last week, um, if you were with us in the park, we moved to the story of the unnamed woman at the well, which are all very popular stories. And today we end up at another very popular story as we dive into what this freedom means for this woman. So about a year and a half uh, ago, um, this guy named Larry Nasser, I don't know if you remember that name, was all over the news. Remember that? He was all over the news. He was in the headlines after it was discovered that he had assaulted and molested over 150 female gymnasts, including some very famous ones that we know of who were Olympians. And um, about, about a year and a half ago, he was sentenced to between 40 and 175 years in prison. And the day of his conviction, while they were in the, the courtroom, they allowed many of the victims to make statements or to say something to him. If they wanted to, they could say something to him. And the statements were so different, each from the other. One girl named Brooke Heilick stood up and said to him, I want you to know I will never forgive you. I will never forgive you. And I, I hope you rot in prison. Enjoy hell. That was her last, those were her last words. And that sounds really harsh. Not really. But she wanted justice. And after all that he had taken from her, I think in some ways her words are appropriate in that moment. And then there was another victim. Her name was Emily Morales, and she said this. I want you to apologize for what you've done so that I can forgive you. I really just want to forgive you. And apparently he did. He did apologize to her that day in the courtroom, and she says that that moment allowed her to offer forgiveness to him. Um, we may not understand it, but she says that she felt some kind of relief. 
And so you see these two very different reactions to this, and, and both of these have place a place in this moment. I don't say that one is wrong almost in this moment. Um, there's, there's justice for Brooke, and there's grace from Emily. And I think that one of the most difficult things about being human is the tension between justice and grace. The tension between these two is what makes life as a human so difficult. And this is the tension that lies at the very heart of who God is. Perhaps one of the most important parts of the Old Testament that we hear over and over and over again is that this God is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and forgiving of sins and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. But if you find that in Scripture, very close to it, around it, will also be the words that this God in no way clears the guilty. This God holds the guilty accountable. There's the tension between grace and justice at the heart of God. And this tension is at the heart of the story we read today. So at the end of this story, we find the justice in it. Where Jesus says to the woman, go and sin no more. And he really means these words when he says them. But you also see the grace at the very same time, in the very same verse, it says, But neither do I condemn you, but neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. Grace and justice. As um, John C. Riley puts it in the 90s film Magnolia, he says, Sometimes people need to be forgiven, and sometimes people need to go to jail. And that's a very tricky thing on my part, making that call. That's what I feel my job is for. That, that divide, that tension between grace and justice. So first of all, let's look at this passage through the lens of justice. Jesus is teaching in the temple, and all of these religious leaders come to him. In, in, in a few verses, we read that this woman has been caught in the midst of the act of adultery, and the law of Moses commands for them to put her to death. And so they ask Jesus... Well, what do you say then, Jesus? And these religious leaders, we know, they are testing Jesus. They're trying to bring a charge against him. They're trying to trip him up. It's a trap. And if he says stone her, he will be breaking the Roman law at the time, which does not allow for anyone to enact capital punishment but Roman officials themselves. And... If he says stone her, the Roman guards are likely to arrest him on the spot that day. But if he says don't stone her, he will be breaking the law of Moses, the Jewish law, which says that adultery is punishable by death. And so Jesus is trapped. He's suspended between these two choices of justice and grace. And his response is as brilliant Jesus as ever. He says, let him who is without sin among you, be the first to throw the stone at her. It's a very famous line. It's exhaustively quoted from the Bible. You may not know very many things about the Bible, but you know that line. You may not know the story it came from, but you know the line. You've heard this before, right? Let him who is without sin among you cast the first stone. Except most of the time when it's quoted, it is completely misused. It is often quoted to mean, 
You shouldn't judge people because we're all just sinful. That's how, how it's often interpreted and applied in secular culture, but this is not what Jesus means. If Jesus meant that, then there would be no need for judges or juries or policemen or any form of judgment at all. Back in 2017, Franklin Graham, in encouraging Alabama voters to vote for Roy Moore, to forget all of his mistakes to, and his underage abuse allegations and to just vote for him anyways, he used this phrase. He got up at the podium and used this phrase. Well, just remember, you all, whoever is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Democrats did the exact same thing to Bill Clinton at his impeachment trials. Congresswoman after congressman after congresswoman after congressman got up to the mic during the scandal with Monica Lewinsky and said, but y'all, let's be honest, let's let he who is without sin cast the first stone. This is in the waters of American culture. This idea that Jesus is just saying that you can't judge anyone because we're all just sinful. Instead, what Jesus was saying was that in this particular trial, in this kangaroo courtroom, in this miscarriage of justice that y'all have set up here in this moment, if anyone among you out here thinks that you are without sin bringing this woman to me in this way right now, go ahead and cast the first stone at her then. Jesus is saying, this is a sham of a trial you have going on here. This is a miscarriage of justice. First of all, they, they publicly expose this woman to shame, and that, and that was not to happen. It says they placed her right in the midst of the crowd, and Jesus is saying, let's be clear, this is not a part of the law of Moses, what you are doing right here. This is cruelty. Second, they asked for immediate punishment upon her. There was no trial. There was no careful investigation. There should have been all of those things. Third, their, their motives have nothing to do with justice, and Jesus knows this. They're there to trap Jesus, to, to catch him up and to bring a charge against him. And then let's not, that's not even to mention the fact, where is the man here? Where's the man also caught in this act of adultery? He should be a part of this trial, right? He should be held accountable with her, not just the woman. And so what Jesus is saying is, if you think this trial is just, then go ahead and cast the first stone. But no one did. It says in verse 9, they went away one by one, and the detail is really important here. It says that the first ones to walk away, to leave, were the older people gathered. Well, because they knew the law. They knew Jesus was right. And they also probably knew their own sin a little bit better, too. And so what we have discovered is that Jesus is, is not lowering the bar on justice here. In fact, he's actually raising it. Jesus knows the Mosaic law. Leviticus 20, verse 10 said, If a man commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, both the adulterer and the adulteress should be put to death. He knows that law. And Jesus is not, as much as we'd like to think differently, not abolishing it. He's not lowering the bar on justice here. He's a man of justice, and there is no evidence. He's a Jewish man, too, so he upholds the law. 
There is no evidence that Jesus was against this law. Jesus says nothing about it. Chances are he was, but he doesn't speak to it. And he said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to give you something new to add to it. Jesus did not spend his ministry trying to change the legal codes. That's not what he was here for. And I know this is hard for us. This is really hard for us. We like to think that Jesus is like us, very progressive and enlightened. Like Jesus would have thought that all those Old Testament laws about punishment and justice were unnecessary and cruel and unusual. We'd like to assume that Jesus did not agree with the law here. We don't know. But that's not the Jesus or the justice we get. I think the reason we imagine Jesus being as judgment-free and against the law as we like to is because our moral imaginations are stunted and weak. We feel very comfortable in our sin. We take sin so lightly. We don't, we, I mean, we, we know the statistics. We don't honor marriage. We, we don't hate adultery. We don't hate it. We don't hate the wreckage that it leaves behind when it happens. It's, it's such a part of our cultural landscape and passive acceptance of sin that we rarely recognize the heinous crime of, of the, the kind of the wake of that and the, the, the betrayal of that. So one of my, my more favorite, recent favorite movies um, at Christmas time is Love Actually. Um, most people are like, who doesn't love that movie? Maybe you don't. Uh, but in this movie, there's Karen, and Karen, played by Emma Thompson, is married to a man named Harry. And she's terrified most of the movie, terrified that her husband is having an affair with his beautiful secretary. After some Christmas shopping with Harry one day, she notices in, in his pocket of his coat this um, beautiful gold necklace in this thin square box, and she gets so excited. And she's immediately relieved he got me something for Christmas, he does love me, he is thinking about me. I didn't believe him, but this is proof that it was all just made up in my head all along, and so on Christmas morning, she's giddy. She's overflowing with excitement, and she even pushes her kids out of the way and says, me first, me first. And she rips open the box with so much giddiness, and it's a CD by Joni Mitchell. And you see the devastation that, that it comes across her face as she realizes that that necklace must have, been, must have been for someone else. And she's the one who got the CD. And you can see the horror and betrayal as right there on Christmas morning, she's trying to look grateful and you know, speak gratefully in front of her children and try to keep all the things together on Christmas morning. And somehow, but somehow it's excruciating and it's, it's, it's impossible and you can see it all over her face. Some of you might know what that feeling is like, that horror, that betrayal. Jesus knew that feeling better than anyone. Jesus knew better than anyone that nauseating kind of betrayal that is just that and heinous injustice that we are far too comfortable with. And that's why his last words to this unnamed adulteress are, go and sin no more. 
They're words of justice. These aren't wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Um, they're there, it's, it's no big deal. Just don't do it again. These aren't those kind of words. He really means go and sin no freaking more. Like you could add a, a, add a freaking uh, adjective into that. I mean, he means it. Go and do it no more. Because he, he knows the pain she has caused to her husband and to another man's wife. Jesus, this perfect Lord of justice, says, go from my grace, leaving my grace which is real, and sin no more. Stop doing it. Stop being comfortable in your sin. As gracious as Christ is, he is equally just. In fact, you cannot understand his grace until you understand his justice. He hates injustice. He hates injustice primarily because he invented justice. And we know this, we see this happening when Jesus does that really overlooked thing, that bizarre and mysterious thing, that moment in the story where it says Jesus bends down to the ground and writes something in the dust and the dirt and then stands back up and then he does it a second time. He bends down to the ground again and it says, write something with his finger for all of the crowd to see. And this moment has driven biblical scholars crazy, insane. What did Jesus write here? What did he write? What was that moment? What was the meaning behind him pausing and, and to write in the dirt in the midst of this scene? And what on earth did it say? Like, it doesn't tell you what it said. And some think Jesus began to list the sins of the people in the crowd. Yeah, I know you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I know you. Yeah. Yeah, you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, some people think that, that they ended up leaving because they were embarrassed now and they walked away. But what I think he's doing here is indicating who he is as this origin of justice. I think he's bending down to write in the dust with his finger to say that I am the Lord Yahweh, who on Mount Sinai gave the Ten Commandments, gave the Law of Moses, and it says in the Old Testament, inscribing them with the very finger of God. He's kneeling in the sand to write again with his finger, the very finger of God, the Tamah, the Ten Commandments, the law, perhaps even underlining, thou shalt not commit adultery. And having realized who he was, one by one, they walked away. Justice is at the heart of God, and, and Jesus raises the bar on it. He doesn't let it go. But Jesus also raises the bar on grace. In the same verse that he says, go and sin no more, go and sin no freaking more. Stop your sin. He first says, neither do I condemn you. Jesus' Jesus's grace covers and protects this woman from the onset, even though he profoundly criticizes and disagrees with the harm of her actions. This grace instinctively protects her from condemnation from the very beginning. The crowd has exposed her, they are berating him, and they continue to ask him, shouldn't she be stoned? Shouldn't she be stoned? And there are many voices yelling and screaming at him, but he doesn't immediately answer. Instead, he bends down to the ground, 
He writes with his finger on the ground. And while this means on one hand he's telling us who he is, the giver of law, the author of justice, on the other hand, he's taking all of the attention, all of the abuse, all of the condemnation onto himself at that moment. He takes the spotlight off her so that he can be so that she can be covered by by his grace. He becomes the lightning rod of hostility in the moment and he takes it on himself willingly. But then he finally rises again, like a judge would rise, at the end of a trial to read a verdict before the people. And he passes the first verdict to the crowd. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. He passes a judgment on this trial, this kangaroo court, and they all slink away in guilt with no more condemnation to give. And that's what grace means. That's what grace is. Grace means no more condemnation. Grace doesn't mean no more guilt. Grace is treating a person who is guilty as if they are innocent. Grace is holding them accountable, but not getting even. Even if they, even if they don't repent. And she doesn't ever in this story. And yet he forgives her, neither do I condemn you. Before God, we are all in that position. Before God, we are all in the position where we have absolutely no right to condemn anyone. Yes, go and sin no more. But no, even I, the Christ, the Lord of law and love, do not condemn you. And every time we are confronted with the gospel, this tension between justice and grace, it's, it's a call to us, yes, to hate injustice as God does and also to offer grace again and again and again. And it's never a one-time decision. This is this ongoing process, continuing to pay down a debt that someone else owes you. That's grace. It's costly. It's difficult to hold your tongue. It's to let the grievances go and to go off your back and to roll down and off to put down the stone. It's costly. Someone actually tweeted, the script editor of Love Actually, and, and asked, so do Harry and Karen, do they, ever, do they stay together after she confronts him? Because it's kind of open-ended in the movie. It's left, it's left hanging for you. And the script editor tweeted back to them and said, they do. They do stay together, but the home is never as happy as it once was. And that's the terrible, realistic answer to that. Because grace is costly. There is a huge cost to be paid for the rest of Karen's life to receive Harry back to her home, to not keep holding it over his head, to not constantly remind him of it. Even for her to remain amorous of it will be very difficult for her to do. And it would be quite the crucifixion of herself for her to keep feeling that over and over and over again to think I was such a fool. I was so naive. He hurt me that badly. And the loss of dignity and the loss of self-respect that, that that would demand, feeling compared to someone else all the time and feeling profoundly unwanted and unattractive, 
Grace is not cheap. It's costly. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, though, who coined this phrase for us as Christians, this phrase, cheap grace, which he described as forgiveness without repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, grace without the cross. Because the cross tells us that God is completely just, 100% just all the time, the cross is God saying, this is what your betrayal feels like to me. This is what it does to me. Because again and again in the Bible, the sin of God's people toward God is described as adultery, betrayal, promise breaking. And so the cross is God saying, you betrayed me, but I'm not going to hold it over you. The cross is God saying, I'm the only one who ever could cast the stone. But instead, I bore the splinters of the cross instead. And this is how passionately I love you. In spite of your betrayal, this is justice. This is grace. And both are at the heart of God. Would you pray with me? God, we often can't imagine what it feels like for you to bear our betrayal and our promise breaking, to bear our adultery. But we all know what that has felt like in our own lives. We all know the cost of forgiving the cost it, it, it took of us, that what, all that it took of us to forgive, what that felt like to put aside our dignity and self-respect, knowing they harmed us so badly, and yet I do not condemn and when we know that feeling, that, that oh gosh, that awful feeling, for, forgiveness is, does not feel good, God, in those circumstances. It's hard. But when we know that, maybe we get a glimpse of your cross. We lift to you people who are in the midst of the, the wreckage of that kind of betrayal and who don't know that that there is a God who knows it so well. We thank you, God, for the freedom that is law fulfilled by love, that is justice wrapped up and covered in grace. And that's who you are. May we never be comfortable with cheap grace that doesn't hurt, that isn't hard. And we pray together that prayer that you taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread 
and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Chose to throw your heart. 